Welcome to Income for Baby Boomers. If you want to learn about exciting new businesses each week from other boomers who speak your language and have started a unique and profitable business from home, you have come to the right place. For those who would like to try some of these low investment opportunities, stay tuned. We'll help you get started in your own profitable adventure. Now with your host and entrepreneur, Ken Queen. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce you to Jim Beach, uh, co-author of School for Startups. He's been in Entrepreneur Magazine, a best-selling author. And uh, welcome, Jim. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. I greatly appreciate it. Super. Uh, and Jim, uh, just you know, looking over all the things you've done, you're so ideal for baby boomers who are losing their jobs or maybe they're semi or maybe they're retired but they can't stand sitting at home any longer and you were ideal for us because i always say that if you can't start a business on a shoestring then don't start it and i think that you probably go along with that minimal investments is the way to go and then once it's working then throw money at it i i couldn't agree more can i a hundred percent believe in starting small and bootstrapping and proving the model works before you spend a lot of money. So I agree with you 100%. Super. Just to, to give us a bit of background, give, give us a bit more background about yourself for those that uh, don't know you, Jim. I know a lot of people do, but go ahead and just tell us a bit about yourself. Sure. I started my first company when I was 25 years old. It was in the children's technology education space. And with no no capital infusion, I grew that company to about $12 million a year in revenue with 600 permanent and temporary employees with 89 locations in the United States. Nice. And I sold that business in 2001 and started uh, teaching. I became a professor with a small p at Georgia State University. That means, you know, a professor without a PhD, one of the people who actually do all of the work. And uh, I was teaching, and my students were saying, you know, this entrepreneurship stuff is really hard. And I was like, no, it's really easy. And they were like, no, Jim, it's really hard. And I was like, no, it's easy. I bet you, I bet you that I can start a business this semester, make it 100% cash flow positive, repay all my startup capital before the end of the semester, and you get to choose the country and the industry that I will start the business in. So So I made a bet with my class. They probably picked a real easy country for you. Yeah, they picked Pakistan. This was right after 9-11. <laughs> right. And so they thought Pakistan would be a fun country. And they also chose the furniture industry, which is a horrible industry. And mm-hmm. so I had three months to build a profitable Pakistani furniture company. And I won the bet. I was able to do that. And I made the same bet several semesters in a row and always won. And that turned into a book sort of encapsulating, you know, the philosophies that we use of low risk, of not worrying about creativity and some of the other things. And that book uh, was published by McGraw-Hill about three years ago and has sold really well. Yeah, that's great. And it, you brought it out in hardcover and also you selling it on Amazon like Kindle and all yes, that? Yes, it's available in all of the different versions, uh, any way you want to buy it. All right, super. Well, that's great. Uh, what I'd like to do is go back. Just uh, What I'm going to try to do is capture your way of thinking right, right from your youth and then all the way up and how it uh, became what it is today. When when did you first get the, the uh, bug to be an entrepreneur? I mean, was it at the 25 age or did you have something long before that? No, you know, I had no desire to be an entrepreneur. Uh, I was thought I was going to work for Coca-Cola for the rest of my life, and uh, they decided otherwise. So I was <laughs> devastated <laughs> to get invited to leave the Coca-Cola building, and at 25, I sort of had a midlife crisis and couldn't decide what I wanted to do. And my parents were very supportive. They were incredible. They said, we don't care what you do. Just get out of our house when you do it. And so they invited me right. to leave. And again, I want to stress how supportive they were. They were incredible. But they also said, you know, you should go out there and be supporting yourself and go do that. And so I did. I I sort of started a business because I had nothing else to do. I couldn't get a job that I wanted. 
all of the jobs involved me moving back to Japan, and I didn't mm-hmm. want to live in Japan anymore. That's why I worked mm-hmm. for Coke, and I was tired of living there. Mm-hmm. And so I started a business simply to pay my bills. I wanted to go back to school and become an architect, and uh, I wanted to you know, pay for my schooling since my parents <laughs> weren't going to. And so I started a business just to pay my bills. I didn't know that I was an entrepreneur. I'd never heard the word. I didn't know any of that. And when someone a year later said, wow, how does it feel to be an entrepreneur? I was like, oh, I guess I am. I had never even thought about mm-hmm. it. It sort right. of snuck up on me. All right. So, at, at, uh, and but that was twenty. So at twenty-five. So yep. uh, you weren't like this isn't something you were doing all your, your life. You were kind of forced into it, That's like a lot of right. Yes, a, a lot of baby boomers are in that exact boat. Exactly. Yes. So, you know, I was forced with the situation that many of our listeners are going to find themselves in: being unemployed, really good skill set, and not wanting to just lay down and die yet. You know, I mm-hmm. still had things yes. I wanted to deliver for the world. And so uh, I had no choice but to really start a business, and that's what I did. Uh, you know, started a business just to pay the bills. It was forced entrepreneurship, not entrepreneurship by desire or opportunity, just opportunity purely by necessity. Uh, necessity is the mother of invention, then. Well, it was the mother of paying the bills. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I had to pay the bills and. You know, that was the, the number one motivating force was, you know, I just couldn't get a job. And at some point in, in some economies, I think that it's easier to get a job. I'm sorry, easier to create a job than to get one. You can spend a year looking for a job or you can spend a year building your business and already have something to show for it at the end of the year. You know, I, I think that sometimes God plays funny jokes on us. And one of the jokes that he might play on someone is to say, I want you to be an entrepreneur. You just don't know it yet. So that's uh, what happened wife... to me, Ken. <laughs> all right. <laughs> um, so how did your wife take all that? Uh, what did she think of uh, you? you well, you know, I, I was engaged at that time, and mm-hmm. it was a, a big mistake. Well, we ended up getting divorced because of entrepreneurship. She was the type of person that wanted a paycheck every other Friday. And that's 100% understandable. There's nothing strange about wanting uh, a husband who's going to get paid. And uh, our lifestyles just did not really add up together. It ended up being the situation where uh, she was not ready for an entrepreneurial husband. Mm-hmm. And so it, the marriage did not work, unfortunately. I had to do better the second time, Ken, and find someone that's very entrepreneurial for my second one. Good. Yeah. So that works out better. Because uh, it's been tough on my wife, like me being an entrepreneur for 45 years. I probably only worked two or three years of my lifetime for someone like an employee situation. It was always commission or it's either I produced or I didn't get a paycheck, whatever I did. Exactly. My own business or whatever. So uh, it's it can be hard on the women, yes. <laughs> uh, but uh, you have to work through it. Uh, that's that's right. Well, you know, it just it's something you need to be honest about. And at that point, I didn't know that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Um, mm-hmm. And so it really wasn't fair for my first wife. You know, I entirely blame me, not her. You know, I was the one who didn't go down the path that we had agreed upon. I get, I get it. Well, that's great. I mean, when you can take responsibility for something, you can get it behind you. When you don't, it sits in front of you. Well, it was 100% my fault, Ken. I asked her to marry me. So I'm 100% to blame. But it worked out great. We had two wonderful children. I think one of them will be an entrepreneur. And uh, she remarried and I remarried and everyone moved on and with happier lives, I think. So one took after dad and one took after mom. I think so. I do think that's what will happen. <laughs> All right. Who were your champions back there in, when you were 25? Who, who did you look up to? Who were you modeling yourself after, do you think? Oh, I don't know. That's a hard one. You know, I certainly looked to my father for a lot of help and advice. He was also a business owner, um, and he was tremendous uh, with support, especially when times got bad, you know, when times did get bad, and we needed his support and help and love. Um, But, you know, I don't know that I ever 
had a role model per se, because again, I didn't even know what I was doing. I was just trying to keep my business afloat and didn't know that I was an entrepreneur, didn't know that I should go out and get money. You know, people ask me, where'd mm-hmm. you get the money to start it? I was like, well, it was my money. Where, where else do you get money? I didn't know about angels. I didn't know about venture capitalists and people that would help you. So when I wanted to start the business, I, I had no money to start with but my own. So I used my credit cards, you know, the way so many entrepreneurs do, mm-hmm. because I didn't know any better. You know, I never heard the word venture capital. I remember distinctly the first time I heard that word, I was like, wow, that's an interesting job. I wish I'd known about that four or five years ago. Could have gone mm-hmm. talk to those people. <laughs> you know, I didn't even know they existed. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was completely operating in the blind and just doing the thing that I needed to do to keep my business afloat today. If that meant paying some bills or going out and making money or doing some advertising, you know, that's the sort of thing that an entrepreneur worries about is, you know, the actual execution. And I didn't have much time to self-reflect. And maybe that was good, maybe that was bad, but I certainly didn't do it for years. Well, it, you were successful right out of the first try, it sounds like. So whatever we you did work. Yeah, it, it did work. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't without pain, and it certainly had its moments where things were not going well. But uh, it did work out very well, yes. So. All right, let's let's come to today. Are there any particular heroes or, or role models that you look up to today in particular? Well, sure. You know, I love anyone that takes a good, solid risk and starts a business. So, you know, I don't sit there and think about Bill Gates or anyone. I, I'm more impressed with what my wife did in the last year. And this is really relevant to your audience. So, Ken, let me tell you about my wife briefly, because this is really interesting. Two years ago, I said, if you're going to be married to me, you're going to have to start a business. I need you to do something on the side as an entrepreneur. And, Mm -hmm. you know, because she wasn't doing anything at all at that time. She had a full-time job, a baby in the house, cooked dinner for me every night. She was hardly doing anything, Ken. And so (laughs) I said to her, honey, you need to do more. And... She started a business the day after Christmas two years ago, so it's 26 months old now. The business she started was incredibly non-sexy. If I tell you what it is, and I will in a minute, you're going to go, oh, that's not interesting. There's nothing sexy about that. But it fulfilled all of my rules. For under $500, she was able to start this business. So very little risk, right? We're only risking $500. And most of that was on inventory, Ken. So if worse goes to worse, we could at least sell the inventory and get maybe $400 back, right? So it's not a huge risk. Mm -hmm. I gave her a book on how to do this, on the entire model. So every single thing she needed to know was in this book. So zero creativity. There's nothing creative about this business. And the third thing about this business was there's zero passion. We don't love this business. We love the money that it makes, but it doesn't, it's not something that we define ourselves by. It's not something that we enjoy doing. We do it and we make money, but we love the money more than the business. So this idea that you have to be passionate about your business, it doesn't make any sense to me. I'm passionate about my lifestyle, not a purse that I may sell. You know, I don't understand Whatever it is, even if it's architecture, my number one love, I'm still not passionate about that. I'd still rather be on vacation with my family, right, you know? So we Mm -hmm. use these three rules that we're not going to risk a lot, we're not going to care about creativity, and we're not going to be passionate about the business. And she still has her full-time job. She still works every day. She still takes care of our baby. We have a four-year-old, and she's pregnant again. Um, And she still cooks dinner every night, Ken. But she has wow, enough you got time. a real good one. <laughs> oh, I got a great one. But listen, it gets even better. In the first year of business, only risking $500, she made $68,000 profit in the first year while wow. still working full-time, while taking care of our baby and cooking dinner every night. $68,000 off of a $500 investment in one year. Now, that may sound like BS to a lot of people, but, you know, I can show you the checks, and I can tell you how to do it, too. I can tell you the book to go and buy. 
that would be fantastic for a baby boomer who's maybe 55 years old and doesn't have a real good chance of getting another good job. You know, you left a $100,000 a year job and now you're getting offered $50,000 a year jobs, right? <laughs> In those circumstances, becoming an entrepreneur is perhaps the least risky path, right? Um, right now, my wife has a job. She could get fired. She also has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of customers. For her to lose hundreds and hundreds of customers would be very, very hard. For her to get fired by a big company would be easy. It happens all the time. You know, big companies right-size, downsize, offshore, near-shore. Close up. Yeah, close up. And good employees lose their job for absolutely nothing that they've done wrong. That's pretty risky where I stand. But now she has hundreds of other income streams, too, hundreds of other customers, and therefore her risk is reduced. I just think it's a wonderful formula. Well, we're drooling for the name of this book. <laughs> well, you know, when I tell you the business, and I'll tell you everything you need to know, you don't even need to read the book, uh, you're going to go, oh, that's not very sexy. But I want to remind you that she made $68,000 profit that's in year one. That's incredibly 000. sexy where I come from, Ken. <laughs> so anyway, the author's name is Skip McGrath, MC. McGrath, G-R-A-T-H, M-C-G-R-A-T-H, and you can go to skipmcgrath.com. He sells books on how to run an Amazon business, and that's what my wife does. She simply buys things at wholesale in bulk and then sells it at retail on Amazon. Amazon does the fulfillment for her. Amazon does the marketing for her, and every two weeks they direct deposit money into her banking account. So the trick is, here's the thing you have to know, 70% of the items sold on Amazon are never owned by Amazon. My wife mm -hmm. owns them. People like my wife own them. Mm -hmm. They buy stuff, send it to Amazon, Amazon sells it, and you make the money. And you as a consumer think that your new purchase came from Amazon because you went on Amazon.com to buy it. In fact, you're buying it from my wife. So if you buy Fiesta dinnerware that you see at Macy's or Bloomingdale's, if you buy it online, you're actually buying it from my wife. And it's the, the simplest little business ever. So there's two things, two tricks. One is you need to be able to double your money on the wholesale price. So if I can buy it for $10, it needs to be selling on Amazon for 20 Rule number one, very simple. Rule number two, it needs to be selling more than a sales rank of 50000 So if you go on Amazon and look at any particular product and you scroll down to about the middle, it will tell you the sales rank. One is good. A hundred is good. A thousand is less good. You know, so it's like golf. The lower the score, the better. You want a sales rank of number one. Well, if the sales rank is under... 50,000. So if it's 48,000, you will sell enough of that product to make it worthwhile doing. Those are the two rules. If you can double your money and if the sales rank is less than $50,000, you're golden. All you need to find is someone who will sell you stuff in bulk. China or wherever. <laughs> or go to a trade show. Here's an amazing story, Ken. Uh, we went to a trade show to try to find stuff. Just, you know, any old trade show will work. We went to a uh, apparel, consumer goods, gift item trade show. Mm -hmm. And the first year, Ken, my wife would point to an item and say, that one might work. Go ask them. And I would walk up to them and say, you know, are we allowed to sell your item on Amazon? If they said yes, I would ask for a brochure. If I said, if they said no, I'd walk away and go to the next booth. Well, my wife, year one, was so shy that I had to go approach the booth. Year two, we went together, but I could barely keep up with her because she was approaching the booze, and I could barely keep up. Year three, I couldn't go because of a prior commitment, and she went by herself and came home with three bags full of brochures. Her personality has blossomed so much in those three years. She's changed so much that now she's able to go off and do this by herself. It's really cool to watch.
that's a great success story, no doubt. Yeah. So she's still doing it to this day. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You can go on right now and buy some Fiesta dinnerware, and we would greatly appreciate the business. All right. Um, selling on Amazon, I've done some selling myself on there. Uh, do you find that you need to really find products that no one else is selling, or just keep that below the 50000 and don't worry about who else is selling. Yeah, you don't worry about who else is selling it. That is absolutely irrelevant, believe it or not. Amazon, even when you compete with them, they give you one of every certain number of sales. So if there's 10 people selling the same item, you get one out of every 10 sales. So that's not something to worry about. That is an excellent idea, and I'm sure... My folks will be look, looking up Skip uh, McGrath for that. Uh, what other businesses would you say have been as good as as good as Amazon? Well, you know that's the the whole point of what we're trying to teach is that they're you know the Amazon is just one example out of thousands low risk businesses that you can start. You know the the idea that you have to be creative to come up with a new idea just is not true. So. You know, one of the things I tell people is I want you to go on Google and type in free business ideas, and thousands of different web pages will come up listing free business ideas that are just as good as the Amazon one, but different. In our book, we list 40 businesses that we give away the entire model. Here's everything you need to do that we can start for under $5,000, and we just say here are 40 of them. Um, the idea is not the hard part. You know, I don't think that if someone wants to start a business, if they really devote themselves to finding a business to copy, they'll be successful. The problem, Ken, is that people are sitting around going, ooh, God's going to strike me with a creativity lightning bolt, and I'm going to have a brand new idea like Facebook, and I'm going to go and become an entrepreneur. Well, you know, sometimes that happens. Never happened to me yet. God hasn't hit me with a lightning bolt yet. And so when we don't have an idea, we have to go find one. And my advice then is just to copy someone. You know, there's nothing wrong with starting another dry cleaner or another restaurant, you know, or another hotel. You don't have to be new to be successful. All you have to do is be better and simply do something better than the other people. So I think there's a million ideas out there of cool businesses to get started. Um, You just need to sort of change your view instead of waiting for God to strike you with an idea. Why don't you go and find an idea, go around and try to solve a problem. Cause I don't know about you, Ken, but I will gladly pay money to make my problems go away. And most people will, you know, I don't like to walk around naked. So I gladly buy clothing, <laughs> right? You know, and you're glad that I do it too. Cause I'm pretty damn ugly naked, but I will gladly give you money if you're solving one of my problems. So that's the way to approach it. Find a problem to solve, and people will gladly pay you money to make that problem go away. Okay, so let's say we've found this business online. We're going to grow snails. Okay. Sell them to fishermen or whatever. Uh, What do you look at? When you look at that snail business, what, what are the first things you look at to see if you even want to consider it? Whether I can find customers day one or not. So my first test is, can I make a list of 100 customers? Can I actually go talk to them and say, hey, I'm thinking about starting this really new snail business, and I know you need snails in your business. Would you be interested in buying from me? You know, I want to have proven that the idea is going to work before I try to spend money on it. I want to do as much research as I can to see if customers are actually going to engage with this product. You know, uh, if I can get 10 people to say, oh, I'm buying that, well, then that's a business that I'm going to spend some money on, right? So my first step is always, always talking to customers. You know, you don't have to spend any money doing that. Just pick up the phone and call people and have 10 conversations, and you'll learn a lot more by doing that than by writing a business. So, okay, get it. writing a business plan is a waste of time. First, you want to find out if you if it's worth writing one. Yeah, you know, I don't know that it's a waste of time, but I never do it. I do believe in doing the research, um, but I don't know that actually sitting down and doing the writing uh, is that useful. I think doing, uh, you know, some market penetration work would be more useful than writing the business plan. 
Um, I've met people, Ken, you know, at a Chamber of Commerce meeting. And then I've seen them six months later, and I ask what they're doing. Like, oh, I'm still working on my business plan, just about to finish it up. I'm on page 29. I'm like, you have spent six months writing a business plan. Are you insane? Why didn't you go sell something for five months? You know? And right. so these people who spend, you know, analysis paralysis, they're doing themselves a huge disservice. Because they might find out in the end it's not a good idea in the, to start with. Yeah, you know, I mean, there are a lot of businesses that are good ideas that no one's going to pay for. One of my favorite examples is a kid came to me and he had invented a technology that would read a web page to you. And I'm like, well, that's great. Who needs it? Who's going to pay for it? You know, wonderful. Mm-hmm. But you can get a web page read to you. Okay, if you're blind, I can see paid for that. He's like, oh, no, no, this is for the mass consumers. I'm like, well, I'm a mass consumer. I'm not going to pay for it. You know, so there are lots of solutions that don't necessarily entice people to give you money. That's not a solution. That's called a hobby. Okay, so you've tested this snail business, and you haven't put a nickel in, just sweat equity at that point. That's right. So my first business, the children's technology business, I put an ad in the paper in Palo Alto, California. Our first location was at Stanford, so we put an ad in the paper in Palo Alto with an 800 number. It said, you know, summer camp, kids, Stanford, the 800 number. The people would call. I didn't even answer the telephone because I didn't know the answer to their questions yet. I had a message that said, leave your voice message and we'll send you a brochure. I didn't bother to uh, create the brochure until I knew 100 people wanted it. If only five people want the brochure, why create it? I waited until I had 100 names. And then I said, well, goodness, I better go build a brochure for these people. They've been waiting for a month now. And then I mailed it to them. But again, I already knew I had 100 customers before I had even bothered to build a brochure yet, thereby reducing my risk. So create the customers, then create the course. Yeah, or, you know, anything. Um, It doesn't necessarily have to be in intellectual property. You decide that you want to sell purses for a living. You find a purse supplier. You buy one or two, and then you go to your girlfriends and boyfriends and say, would you buy this purse? You know, again, you've only spent $50 to buy one sample, but it allows you to do incredible research and find out whether people are really going to buy it or not. You know, you might have all your friends go, nah, I just don't like it. It doesn't have a pocket for my cell phone, so I'm not going to buy that purse. And for $50, you've saved yourself 50000 So, you know, I, I think the rule applies for any product, whether it is a tangible product, a website, an app, no matter what it is, you know, you have the ability to go to people and say, would you spend your money for this? Not your company's money, your money. Big difference. I'll spend your money all day long, Ken. (laughs) Really, I will. I I, I am very generous that way. I, I will come to your house and spend money for you for days on end. See how kind I am? Mm-hmm. When it comes to spending my money now, that's a totally different question, isn't it? I I got gotcha. you. That's good. One thing also I found interesting uh, reading about a lot of businesses that often they started in one direction, but that was not where they ended up. Some side thing turned out to be the main deal. Yeah. What they thought was going to be the big deal was nothing. Yes, the famous pivot. Yeah. You know, that's really trendy right now. I don't get it, to be honest. You know, if if you had done the work in the first place, you know whether your customers like the idea or not. You know, so to me, the pivot means we really didn't know what we were doing at first, but we're still going to try again, and we're hoping that next time it will be better. I got you. You know, I'm not a fan of that. I kind of think that it's BS, to be honest. You don't think that's, that's true. I was just thinking in terms of, like, let's say, okay, you back to the snail business, and you find out that all the fishing shops would rather take your course on how to grow the snails themselves, for example. So you approach them to sell them some snails, but they're, you find out, hey, if you can give them the course to do it, they'll buy that. 
so it was slightly deviation uh, a derivative of the original idea right you know that's okay that doesn't bother me and that does happen all the time you know, what ha we actually have a name for that we call it the corridor principle so when you're walking down the path of entrepreneurship right and imagine mm -hmm. there's a very long hallway in front of you and you're standing right. at the entrance to the hallway Mm -hmm. On the left and on the right, there are doors that lead into various rooms. But from your angle, you cannot see into any of the rooms. You have to start walking down the hallway before you can see in the rooms to the right or the left. Mm, exactly. Get the analogy closer. is I have to be an entrepreneur who's actually doing something before these other opportunities are going to present themselves. So here's a great example. My wife and her wonderful Amazon business, is now helping other women start that business too. Nice. So that's a tangential auxiliary income stream from her that only developed because she was walking down the pathway in the first place. All right. Then uh, the other question along this line I have is, do you think that if we're too, well, especially the person that's written up the 40-page, <laughs> what he's going to do and how he's going to do it, that over-planning and when he finally acts, might become blinders to blind him to those auxiliary opportunities. And he, if it doesn't fit into the model he spent two years writing, he won't look at it. So maybe over-planning, that would be another weakness of over-planning? Uh, I 100% agree with that. Yes, I do see people who simply become so in love with their idea that when they're presented with, you know, facts or evidence that's contrary, they just don't believe mm -hmm. it, you know. Certainly, entrepreneurs can get so obsessed with their own thinking that they fail to listen to the advice that other people are giving them. I do see that a lot. Yes, you need to be very aware and cognizant that you know your advice might not be the the end all, and that you might need to listen to someone else too. Um, mm -hmm. Those sort of things are very true. As far as automating a business, uh, so that it can be, I guess you could call it a uh, monthly paycheck without you having to put in those hours. In other right. words, rather than individual counseling, you created a course on counseling. Uh, do, do you find that you try to get to that passive income stage as quickly as possible with your businesses? Uh, sure. You know, if the business, if that's natural for the business, a lot of businesses, that's just not a natural progression, you know, and you should never get to that point. A business needs to be designed to be outsourced like that from the beginning. But a lot of businesses, that's just not going to work for. And you're sort of referring to the four-hour work week book by Tim Ferriss. Yes. You know, I don't know that I believe that, and I don't know that there's that many people who could get away with that. Um, the only entrepreneurs I know that have worked four hours a week and get away with it are the ones that used to work 400 hours a week and got really successful, and now they've retired a little bit, or they've gotten so good that their businesses are self-perpetuating. I don't know that that's a realistic thing for us beginners. I don't know that that's something we want to try for from day one. I just don't know that that's very realistic. It's pretty I hard to you. do. I got you. And imagination, how do you uh, feel that plays into the whole starting a business? Uh, you know, I'm not a big concern with creativity. I, I, I don't, you know, really get concerned with that when it becomes an entrepreneurial question. I am very concerned with innovation and doing things better than other people have done them. You know, so mm -hmm. the story I like to tell is, say I decide to open up a bookstore. Okay, everyone knows what a bookstore is. Are there things that I can do to make it sexier than the other people's bookstores? You know, so if I put a cafe in the middle with delicious coffee, you know, will that entice visitors in? If I name my parking lot sections, like this is the Shakespeare section and this is the Edgar Allan Poe section, will that make it any sexier? Well, it might. It makes it 0.1% sexier. Okay, well, let's do that. You know, everything that I can do in terms of coming up with innovative ways of making my business cooler, sexier, I love all of those. You know, so I'm a big fan of innovation. I'm not a fan of creativity, though, and I think there's a huge difference. I worry about making things 1% better. That's called innovation. 
I don't worry about making 100% new stuff because I'm not good at that. Well, I am really good at making it 1% better and saying, you know, we could save $4 if we didn't do this. Well, then that makes sense. Let's save $4. Um, that's the sort of creativity that I want my entrepreneurs to be focused on, making things a little bit better. So what you're really saying is that don't try to reinvent the wheel. There are so many uh, good products out there now, and that we already know they have a following. So now all you have to do is go in there, uh, copy 90% of it, change it 10%, and you don't have to experiment. You already know that item sells, and your item might sell better than the original guy. He came up with a creativity, but you came up with a better product, like McDonald's. Right. Well, you know, the, the technology company that I started when I was 25, it was 100% a copy of someone else's business. They did their business at a place called Claw Crest Resort in Connecticut. I did my business at a place called Stanford and another place called MIT. Which one would you rather send your kids to, Claw Crest Resort or MIT or Stanford, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you so, know, it's, it's a stupid the question. same idea coming from a different place though. exactly you know my curriculum was the same as his curriculum but I delivered mine at MIT my product was three times more expensive than his and more successful right um, I just did better than he did it's that simple so there's enough there's enough great businesses out there pick one that you would like a field you'd like to work in, you got to have some like for it, right? If you hate vacuum cleaners, yeah. don't go into the vacuum cleaner business. But yeah. uh, at the same time, it sounds like don't fall in love with it because if it's no good, you can drop it. Yeah, you know, you're only supposed to fall in love with your children and your spouse. You're not supposed to love a business. That's weird mm -hmm. to me. Again, mm -hmm. I only I don't understand people that are say you have to be passionate about what you do. I don't. I just don't think that's true. Because there's something you would rather be doing. You know, you and I enjoy talking to each other, Ken, but I think you'd rather be in Bermuda with your wife, right? Uh, no, it's too cold there right now. Okay. <laughs> you'd rather be in Cancun with your wife, right? <laughs> so I've proven that there's something you're more passionate about than work, and that's the way it's supposed to be. Well, I'd probably be the exception to the rule. I would be in Cancun and I'd be read, reading a business book. <laughs> well, I, I, I have that problem, too. I took my wife, the first wife, to the same resort where Bill Gates and Melinda got married in uh, Kauai. Wow. I think I took her there. Nice. And when I checked out, Ken, they gave me two bills. Here's your $4,000 bill for your food and room, and here's your $5,000 bill for that telephone we put next to the pool for you. You know, <laughs> I've been there. I've done that. I've been on vacation and gotten in trouble for doing too much work myself. <laughs> too much work on the phone. Yeah. All right. And and I, I realize imagination is a two-edged sword. I mean, uh, you could think of, you know, where, where it said what I thought, what I expected the worst happened. And then, of course, you know, you have the Walt Disney. Uh, he says imagination rules the world. But, of course, it wasn't the imagination. It was also his uh, hard work. <laughs> yep. He was able to bring it into reality. Exactly. And his brother's ability to pay for it. You know, and his brother's <laughs> you know, we, we We often forget that part of the story. But we have to remember that Roy, if it wasn't for Roy, none of Walter's dreams would exist. So, you know, let's not forget about good old Roy in this story. He was able to pay for all of Walt's crazy dreams. And he probably hated kids. <laughs> you know, he, he it is interesting. He was not a fan of what Walt was doing, you know, um, wow. and did not approve of a lot of Walt's decisions. Um, and in the end, they were not the best of friends. I think they died fairly acrimoniously. Um, and the children are not friends anymore, from what I understand. Um you know, I think that it was well, a situation fighting where, over the fortune. Probably. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, and that's a good lesson for all of us to learn. If you're going to be partners with someone, you actually need to be true partners. Walt and Roy were not a true partnership. Walt, you know, steamroy, steamrolled Roy all the time, and they weren't a good partnership. And I think that's, you know, reflected 50 years later in their children fighting over each other. If you're going to have to, you know, if you have a partner. 
boy, you need to trust that partner and be all in with that partner. It's more than a marriage. You know, it's easy to get out of a marriage. It's really hard to get out of a co-founding situation. You, you best have – so that would be a good uh, – if anyone's going to go into a partnership, you better have the outs figured out now so that one partner can buy out the other. If things I agree, yeah. Don't work out a year from now. That's right. Yep. But it's going to be pretty hard to, to work that agreement out then. Yes, it is. To say, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. wait a minute, you're not giving me enough for my half to get rid of me, and so that's on. right. That's right. All right. So, okay, if someone's thinking of a new business right now, what's the first step they should do? Talk to ten random people and see if they would buy it. You know, just before you spend one cent, before you do any research. Just go to 10 of your friends and say, I'm thinking about starting a new French restaurant here in town. Would you eat there? Just the the basic market research, you do that long before you start the bank account, get the legal papers, the IRS, FEIN number. All of that comes after hopefully someone's giving you a check. The number one cool problem to have is to have a check for a company that doesn't exist yet. Mm -hmm. Because now you have zero risk. You have zero risk. Now you you start the company, you go get the bank account, and you already have a check to put into the bank account. How cool is that? Not a check that you wrote, but a check that a customer wrote. That's an indifferent. That's a different type of check. That's someone else's money. <laughs> and that's the second step then, because your first people are your friends. They may lie to you, but the one that writes the check isn't lying. That's true. That's right. Someone who writes a check, uh, there's no way you can lie when you put your signature on a check. That is true. So that's the ultimate test, you know. See if people will will pony up for it. And if you can't get people to say yes, then you need to change your pitch. Okay, so now you come to the stage that, okay, you see people are going to do this. you got to get out there and produce this product. Uh do you like the idea of things like Kickstarter uh, to do the funding? Sure. You know, I love the crowdfunding. If uh, if you need $20,000 to go get started, I love that idea, especially since you don't have to give up equity many times to do it. So, yeah, I'm a big fan of any of the alternative funding mechanisms. You know, anything, again, it all comes down to one rule. Can I reduce risk? If I can reduce risk by using your money, or someone in Topeka, Kansas, money that I've never met before, but who likes my idea, that's a good decision to make because it reduces my risk. It makes me sleep better at night. And there's no reason to be rich if you can't sleep at night, Ken. Would you agree with that? <laughs> I would agree with that. Yes, yes. I mean, Al like, Capone probably couldn't sleep well. That's right. And Michael Jackson needed a ton of drugs to sleep every night, and you see how it ended up killing him. Oh, so. No matter how much money you have, you want to be able to sleep well. At least I do. I, I got you. Okay, so you've you've tested it. You're seeing that hey, there's potential there. Uh, you know, there are people that already agreed to put their charge card up to buy one of these gadgets for ninety nine dollars as soon as it's ready. Uh, what would be the next step? You know, at some point you have to start getting ready to fulfill. So. You know, I don't know if that means building a website or that might mean going to China and finding someone who's going to build your purses for you. But, you know, as soon as I get customers ready, uh, I'm going to start fulfilling. You know, and again, I don't know what that is because it will depend on the product. Depending what it is. Yeah. But, you know, if you're developing a physical product, you need to start getting ready to sell it. If you are developing a service like web design or something like that, you need to go convert one of those customers in or, you know, potential customers, convert them to a real customer, say, you know, six months ago you said you would be interested in this service. Well, it's available now, and we hope that you're still interested. Are you? You know, I want to start getting those people to, you know, the next step down the road, which is getting them to cut a check and start paying for the service that I'm selling. You know, pretty soon after you have that test, I'm going to start selling just as soon as possible because that early revenue will be what allows you to bootstrap and build the rest of the business without raising money, hopefully. Again, we want to reduce risk by using our customers' money if we can. So if, let's say, a book was your your project, all you need is a, a name of the book, an outline, and then say, okay, how many people would be willing to pay for an early uh, copy of this once it comes out? So now you have not 
wasted a lot of time writing the book. You've got the outline, but you don't have a lot of risk in it. And then see how many people bite on that. Would that sure? Be a, that's right. You know, uh, that's the exact same way you sell a book to McGraw Hill or Wiley. You write a one-page proposal and tell them what the rest of the book is about, and that's what you should be selling. So, yeah, I wouldn't write the book until I've been paid to write the book. I wouldn't do the consulting until I've been paid to do the consulting. Yes. Now, how do you keep yourself legal in that area in that you say, okay, only 10 people paid. I'm not writing the book. Here's your money back. I mean, is there is there any area you're going to get yourself in trouble there? Or? No, I don't think so. You know, uh, Kickstarter and Indiegogo have their various rules for the, the crowdfunding. Those rules are designed to protect you, and as long as you follow them, you're going to be okay. So, you know, that doesn't worry me. Um, there's nothing wrong with, you know, returning people's money and saying, I decided not to do this business. There's there's something actually very, very, very honest about that. All right. So that's not uh, – you, you see from the people's side, there's not a problem. There would only be a question if there's a uh, – you didn't produce, I'm going to sue you, whatever. Right, yeah. You but, know, you know, again, you know, Indiegogo is not going to give you the money until you have satisfied the goal. You know, if you have to raise $1,000, they're not going to give you $800 until you've gotten that 1000 So – those, but they're going to give you that thousand, and you haven't shipped the product yet, though. Right? Well, you know that's supposedly you'll use that thousand to create the product, and there are lots of examples of Indiegogo campaigns that have not delivered their promises. Um, that happens all the time. You know, the you, you, there's really nothing for you to do as a consumer because there's no one to sue. You know, you can sue a company right. that's already gone out of business. What good is that going to do you? So, but no, there are any. Uh, go-go campaigns that fail all the time and you know, they raise their money and then just never deliver. Um, there've been some amazing big examples of that. Um, one company raised about a million and a half dollars and never shipped a single thing. So, wow. Yeah. So they just ran, walked off with the money. Yep. Yep. And that's the risk that you take when you, you know, invest in a campaign like that. Those are people that you've never met before. You know, you never talk to them on the telephone. Mm. I don't know that I would buy something from someone that I've never met, never spoken to, and never questioned. <laughs> I hope the picture of the product they showed there comes out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That you just paid for. Right. All right, but there's millions, I don't know millions, but there's a ton of people that are doing it. So that people will will, will cough up that money for a product that's not that doesn't exist Sure. Yet. If I were trying so to raise a, money, I would do it in a heartbeat, definitely. And And, and is it a fairly easy thing to accomplish, would you say, to, to go to a Kickstarter and say, okay, I'm going to raise 20000 for my uh, whatever invention. And uh, I think I've heard like 40 or 40% of the people reach their goal. Something Maybe they like, set yeah. low goals. I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it depends on how big your network is, just like anything else. You have to be able to find a way to direct thousands of people to the, the campaign, you know. You can't assume that just because you're on Kickstarter that a thousand people are going to see your campaign and give you money. You still have to drive the people there. So you still need to have a following. Uh, from what I understand, a successful Kickstarter campaign starts six months before you hit the launch button on oh, you do? Kickstarter. Oh. So right. you got to get the people lined up. What do you think of Quirky? You know, I don't know that website. I'm sorry, I don't know about that one. Okay, it's a, it's uh, you submit your idea, everyone votes on it. If you get enough votes, then the company makes the product, something along that line. Okay, you know it's exactly sort of what we've been talking about: getting customers mm -hmm. and approval first, isn't it? Right. Now I put an idea up there, and uh, I thought it was a good one, and like two people responded. So <laughs> I thought, well, maybe it wasn't such a good idea after all. <laughs> yeah. Or no one saw it. I mean, I didn't yeah, no promote one, it. That's very possible that no one saw it. And uh, Yeah, I didn't promote it at all. I just thought, well, let's just test this. Here's a here's one of my thousand ideas. We'll throw it up there. Mm -hmm. um, but okay. Uh, so you don't, as far as risk, Jim, what you're saying is don't go out and try to bring a brand new product for a brand new field for something that's never, no one's ever heard of before. That would probably be the hardest thing to accomplish. Uh, that sounds really difficult to uh, me, yes. What would be the uh, 
the best way for folks to get a hold of you and your school. And uh, I'm sure many would love to join it. I was looking at it, and it was very economical to be part of it. So yeah, uh, if anyone's serious, they, they'd certainly get involved with you. Well, we have 80 hours of videos online that talk about absolutely every part of entrepreneurship, all based on our low-risk philosophy. So you can do that at schoolforstartups.com. And if you buy the book, there's a code that gets you into the website for free. So for $9, you can buy the Kindle version and get everything that's in my brain. So it's my entire brain is worth $9, Ken. Wow. Um, yeah, nice. so, yeah, it's not $8, right? Um, so that's uh, where to learn from us. And then if you want to get in touch with me directly, uh, Twitter, at Entrepreneur Jim. So people can find me there, at Entrepreneur Jim. And I'd love to hear from anybody. Okay, and I'll, I'll put that all in the show notes. Uh, if you Perfect. email me that all over, I'll make sure that uh, every one of those places where they can hook up with you are there. I would appreciate uh, it. I would I would love to people to see your service because, again, you think like I do, and that is bootstrapping. I I, I hate – I mean, a, a friend of mine, his brother, just started a business, put $75,000 out. It was some kind of service business to service and fix kitchens or something or other. I don't think he got one customer, and he's looking for a job now. Yep. So the 75000 now he was told, well, look, you got to go and, you know, my – friend said who's an entrepreneur you got to go out and knock on doors hand out flowers oh no no the company's giving me <laughs> the formula yeah and uh i'm doing these mailings and i'm doing this and that and it was all a costly outreach and he got nothing he lost mm-hmm. seventy five thousand within 60 days 90 days he couldn't afford to pay the rent the place that they, they you know they told me he had to have a physical location and on and on and he, he you know he was just <laughs> yeah Sad lost story. it all that story. Yeah, and and so I hate even small franchise opportunities sometimes. I know there's legitimate ones, but boy, be careful. <laughs> yes, you have to. Totally agree. All right. Well, Jim, uh, thank you uh, for taking the time to, to uh, spend it with us. And uh, I'm sure you'll be hearing from uh, my listeners and me. And, and I hope to uh, interview you again further down the, down the line. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Jim. All right. Thank you for listening to Income for Baby Boomers with your host, Ken Queen. Helping boomers like you get a business started you can run from your own home. We interview owners of both online and offline businesses, but most importantly, ones that are run by baby boomers. Stay tuned next week for new and exciting businesses that you can start from your home. Until next time, have a profitable and blessed week.